0: Hello, and welcome to Civic Spaces, the podcast from European Civic Forum, in which we sit down with those fighting for systemic change in Europe and beyond. Today, we're bringing you the first in a series of episodes highlighting the winners of this year's Civic Pride Awards. The prize, awarded annually, is dedicated to celebrating the work of outstanding civil society organizations, activists, and movements. In today's episode, we sat down with Miles Tanhira from TGEU, an organisation which works to strengthen the rights and well-being of trans people in Europe and Central Asia. So. Before we get started, I'm joined by Jada Negri, who actually conducted the interview with Miles. Jada, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Ben.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I was wondering, Jada, could you just give us a little bit of a flavor about what we're going to hear about the interview, your impressions?
1: Yeah, this was a very powerful and touching interview. Mm. We spoke with Miles about the achievements and victories of this trans rights movement in Europe as well as the threats that they are facing, you know, in the context of the anti-gender backlash and rise of far-right parties. Uh, We discussed what makes a movement resilient and how we can practice as civil society the values that we aspire to see in our society, like intersectional solidarity Mm -hmm. and collective care and also the importance of politicizing and institutionalizing REST. Then Miles shared some concrete tips on how to be better allies for trans people and the movement, including how to communicate uh, about uh, their rights. So it's a very exciting (laughs) interview, I I hope you will enjoy. Before we start going into the interview, Miles, could you share maybe a little bit about your role?
2: Okay, thank you so much. Um, my name is Miles Rotendo Tanera. I am uh, from Zimbabwe, Sweden, I'm also from Sweden. I work at 3GEU. I'm the senior programs uh, officer. I lead the work in the community building team. So I'm responsible for membership engagement. Designing and implementing the membership strategy, uh, co-creating activities with our members, designing uh, capacity strengthening activities, trainings, uh, gatherings, and, the, and the, all the programmatic work within TGE.
1: That's great. Thanks a lot. Uh, so, to start with, could you tell us about the situation for trans rights in Europe?
2: Thank you for the question. Uh, is This is a broad question. I'm going to divide it into four uh, spheres, right? Uh, so the first one that we are looking at is at the legal level. And then the second one is at the political level. The third one is at a social level. So it's three levels. So and then I will look at the empowerment, the question around empowerment. So at a legal level, we have seen uh, a lot of uh, progress in terms of trans rights uh, in Europe, focusing mostly on the legal gender recognition. Uh, of 40, now we have 41 countries in Europe that provide for legal gender recognition to trans people. And uh, of these 11 uh, have an, a legal gender recognition based on the human right, recommended human rights approach of self-determination, which also gives dignity and respect to trans people. We have also seen a lot of um, uh, like a gamut of uh, legislative uh, policies that are inclusive of trans people in terms of anti-discrimination, uh, hate speech, um, anti hate speech, and also related to sports, labour market, and transparent road. Over the past years, we've also seen the first EU LGBTQI strategy, twenty twenty two to twenty five, which commits the entire EU Commission to support trans rights, um, and it also sets out a number of uh, measures to ensure that LGBTQ and particularly uh, trans people and non binary people. Uh, have their rights respected and enjoy their rights fully. In the recent years, we've also seen quite a number of EU strategies uh, that have been adopted. For instance, the gender equality strategy, disability, anti-racism strategies. They also include additional measures to, uh, for example, alleviate poverty in trans communities and also to uh, promote uh, diversity inclusion particularly of uh, further marginalized uh, communities, uh, such as black people of color uh, and people uh, with disabilities, the youth uh, and et cetera. Uh, The major also thing that happened in terms of trans health care, we have also seen the uh, introduction of the ICD-11. So ICD is the International Classification of Diseases moved from 10 to ICD-11 now, which means the the depathologization of trans identities under ICD-11. This means that trans uh, people are no longer seen as having a mental illness uh, or needing a mental health assessment in order to access uh, healthcare. Uh, So countries like Malta, Spain, Belgium have made strides in providing comprehensive and accessible trans uh, and gender affirming healthcare. And most countries, we're seeing that most countries are beginning to ban practices uh, based on gender identity through law, although we still have some countries that have these problematic laws. And socially, we've also seen an increase uh, in visibility and representation. For instance, there's many trans people represented in the media in politics, and cultural events. And uh, there's also an increase in trans stories and experiences being shared in the uh, broader public spaces, both offline and online. There is, this also speaks to the uh, education and awareness campaigns that are happening and efforts to raise public um, uh, awareness on trans issues is also gaining momentum. Politically, we are also seeing uh, political groups within the the very focused uh, diversity and inclusion approach and they're willing to have trans people take leadership in their parties and governments. For example, in Germany, we are seeing trans people in in positions of power in politics in Belgium, Netherlands, and France. And then in terms of empowerment, we're also seeing collective organizing spaces where grassroots organizations are coming up, uh, supportive communities are emerging in different const- context uh, despite the challenges or the volatility, and also trans people are at the forefront of leading the trans movement, which is something really inspiring. Uh, and there's a collective consciousness to work intentionally and intersectionally in building movements, so not not being single issue, focused movements, working uh, to center the voices of the further marginalized within the movement, but also working to forge alliances with other strategic and uh, intersectional movements. We are also seeing uh, trans leadership and visibility and activism uh, that is really yeah, empowered and uh, rising. Uh, and trans people are slowly gaining the agency to reclaim their narratives, to reframe uh, the trans discourses. And also, we see a lot of young people are coming out early as trans and non binary and are empowered to define and uh, clarify their own politics, which is something really inspiring, even for other generations. And trans organizations are leading advocacy and playing a crucial role in also strengthening the, 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 the resilience and, uh, and the empowerment of trans uh, and the well-being of trans people. Uh, and this is also supported in policy changes, awareness, and TGUs has played a significant role in, in, in this uh, uh, and we continue to advocate for the trans rights and well-being of uh, trans people.
1: Wow. Well, so it's so great to start uh, the interview with uh, a lot of positive uh, um, achievements. And it's yeah great to hear that uh, we have done a lot of advancements on this front. Uh, but of course, this happens in the context of also a backlash, right? So uh, I would like to ask you, what are some of the challenges that uh, trans organisations and activists face?
2: Yeah, you have, as rightfully, as you said, it's uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult uh, uh, space to be organising, especially at this time, and yet it's also an exciting one. So despite the highlighted wins that I spoke about earlier, our communities continue to face a lot of escalating levels of transphobia, violence, discrimination, and poor health outcomes, as well as economic hardships such as unemployment, housing, insecurity. And uh, this also, to share uh, deeply about these challenges, I will also use the same approach. Look at the structural, uh, some of the structural obstacles in terms of healthcare, there still remains a lack of affordable and accessible quality and trans-specific medical care, including medical support. For example, we have seen in the UK recently puberty blockers for young people have been banned, and that is also the case in Sweden and in other countries like Ireland. they are excruciatingly, excruciatingly long queues waiting for to see to have the first appointment with a, 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 a specialist. So you can wait as long as uh, seven or more years just for the first wow. appointment, and we also see recently in Russia, which became the just a few weeks ago, it became the first country to completely ban medical transition for for trans people, and this is a setting a, a bad precedent because uh, we fear that other countries will also try to follow the same uh, same approach. Yeah. And in terms of legal gender recognition, I spoke of uh, successes, and yet we still have challenges. Many countries still use that, still pathologize trans people, still treat trans people as uh, people with mental illness, and they require some inhumane, harmful, and uh, discriminatory processes that people have to go through. Uh, And this is linked to most of the challenges that trans people experience very daily. And in some countries, uh, certain groups such as uh, asylum seekers, refugees, people with chronic illnesses, non-binary people, youth, they, they do not have access to LGR. And we're also seeing right now, we're also actually very worried about uh, the trends that we are seeing in countries such as Hungary, Bulgaria and Russia, where they are banning uh, legal gender recognition uh, in total There still remains a lot of labor uh, market discrimination. Uh, harassment and violence, whether you are working or looking for employment. So this also contributes to trans people uh, working in informalized or criminalized economies, such as sex work, and uh, it increases their precarity, especially for people who are refugees, uh, irregular or undocumented. Uh, and this uh, creates a lack of economic agency, uh, a situation of insecurity, if I can say. And uh, politically, we are seeing a high increase of uh, state-instigated transphobia. Countries such as Russia and Hungary are notorious for taking a radical stance against trans people. And in countries where there are elections, they are using the trans issue as bait, you know, to get election uh, votes and also to divert people's attention from the real issues so they using trans as uh, something to to divide the community, like creating us and them. And the shrinking democratic spaces in general for civil civic society. So you can only imagine for other groups, which are the minority within a minority. So, there's a lot of injustices that are going on for civil society activists in general, and trans uh, groups and activists uh, become really isolated because they are also sometimes even isolated from other movements or, or even other uh, civil society groups that do not want to work with trans, uh, trans people. Uh, and that increases the uh, perpetuates the cycle of, of, of violence uh, within uh, these countries. There's also a key issue is the rising anti uh, far-right groups. they the increasing anti-trans rhetoric and the anti-migrant rhetoric, anti-sex work rhetoric. And it's also leading to these policies that are really inhumane all over Europe. We are seeing this even at the EU levels, right? And what mo- what is most worrying is that uh, 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 some of these so-called democratic or progressive forces, they are not speaking out they are not supporting or showing up for trans people or other federal marginalized communities. And then there's no one else to speak uh, like together or support trans people, which is... uh, And they actually see trans rights as um, a luxury or a nice to have, not a a fundamental right. So that is very uh, problematic, yeah. Uh, socially, we also see many trans people, uh, especially youth, they face a lot of mental health challenges because they are uh, outcasts, and considered outcasts in their families. They are rejected. They are homeless, bullied in schools. They have no support. And uh, obviously, they don't have employment. So it it increases their insecurity. Uh, and this is also the same for, for the marginalized groups, people of color who are also racialized facing intersectional discrimination, uh, youth, uh, uh, sex workers, uh, trans-feminine, undocumented uh, migrants, uh, refugees. They also face heightened levels of uh, racism, uh, ableism, and misogyny. Uh, this is also something we see uh, for marginalized groups experiencing. Um, yeah. And also, if you look at how this discrimination and violence and poverty mutually reinforce each other, they create this uh, cycle, um, which means that those living in poverty are more likely to suffer human rights violations. And those disproportionately affected by discrimination and violence are more likely to be living in poverty. Uh, so, you see that those experiencing inter- intersectional discrimination are the ones who are most impacted. For example, the TGEU Trans monitoring uh Monitoring uh, recent statistics from 2021 revealed that 327 trans and gender diverse people were murdered uh, globally. And most of them were racially um, uh, trans uh, racialized trans, uh, trans femme people. Of these, we saw that. Uh, in Europe, for the first time, we recorded cases in Estonia and Switzerland. And both of these victims were migrant, black, trans women. So you see the intersectionality is there. And 36% of the trans people that were reported murdered in Europe were migrants. So you can also see how this cycle is, is being replicated. And economically, we are also seeing as we can see, that the effects of the COVID-19 were most felt by those who are uh, further marginalized. And it also also revealed the existence of inequalities. It it just made it clear that this has always existed, but also it heightened the precarity of those groups that are further marginalized, and that is trans uh, trans people, especially uh, the groups that I mentioned, refugees, migrants, sex workers, people of color. Um, and at an individual level, in the, uh, economic marginalization for trans people com- continues. Uh, the EU Fundamental Rights Agency, uh, FRA, in 2019, revealed that 46% of trans people uh, reported having troubles or challenges uh, accessing ends meet. Uh, And as I said, the COVID-19 only exacerbated this situation. Uh, organizationally, trans groups are overworked and underfunded and they have have to just try and survive work without resources because it is a cause that is dear, and uh, it's very really difficult, especially in terms of unprecedented crisis, to continuously organise without uh, being resourced.
1: Thank you for sharing these challenges and injustices. Um, I'd like to go back to the topic of activism and movements. Um, from your experience in movement building, um what makes a movement
2: resilient yeah that is, that is a very good question um in my view um resilience is not simply about bouncing back or bouncing forward in the face of adversity uh, there's always a temptation to think that uh, resilience is linear it is not it is not linear it is is uh, directional and it can also be messy right and um, while resilience looks differently in in different contexts and for different people, uh, I think the core characteristics of a resilient movement is uh, um, the realization that um, uh, we need each other and that uh, when there's no enemy within, the enemy outside cannot do us any harm. And and some of this, uh, how we nurture and nourish our movements uh, is rooted in some uh, three key Things that I have seen that I, I can share. The first one, which is uh, collective organizing, uh, rooted in collective care, and uh, by that I mean that co- these are movements that are led by compassion, compassionate leaders who are willing to serve passionately and to meet people where they are and to accept people the way that they are, and uh, leadership that bring allows vulnerability into a space and with spaces where tough conversations are welcome and spaces where uh, people are, are able to break down, to to heal, to replenish, and to celebrate each other. So these are spaces that I think also uh, accept people as they are uh, and where it's not so much about perfectionism or self-sacrifice matter or whatever or uh, that I do more, you don't. It's about really creating spaces for um, politicizing rest so that it's okay to rest, you know. (laughs) So this for me is uh, what makes uh, movements stick together uh, in in different stages that they experience. The second thing uh, is that uh, resilient movements, they center they are really intentional about centering intersectionality and being inclusive uh, in the way that they organize and, and, and there is equity in the way that they organize. By that, I mean that they are reflective. They are willing to learn and unlearn and relearn if they have to. And um, and, and they forge strategic alliances uh, with uh, also through an intersectional approach with people that also share the same values as they do uh, and they they, they they strive to create inclusive spaces where everyone's voice is valued especially uh, those that are further marginalized within the movement um and they do not reinforce this is very important they don't reinforce the same systems that they are fighting to dismantle you know uh resources are shared equitably and, and 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 they they stick together because they Really are rooted in the same core values. So the third thing is that they have collective frames or shared values and visions and purpose. Uh, so that even in times of adversity, there's something to always go back to the shared purpose. They will ex- they will experience turbulence. They will experience challenges, breakdowns, fights, conflicts. But because they have shared purpose, a collective uh, a vision. That's what keeps them together, you know. And they, they don't sink into tunnel vision in the face of challenges. They take advantage of opportunities. So where others are seeing chaos, they see connections. And for me, those are the three uh, key, key important uh, steps for uh, uh, resilient movements.
1: Wow. I have goosebumps <laughs> because this is so insightful and when you were talking about especially care and the need to, for for example, politicize rest. This is something that speaks very directly to me. And uh, given that this is also one of your area of interest, I was wondering, if you have uh, any strategy or tips or actions that you've seen implemented that uh, you find inspiring when it comes to collective care?
2: Um Yeah, that is a good question. Um There are many strategies that I have seen and, you know, like there's always a strategy for everything. You always have to pick what works for you and what works for one movement might not work for another, but it's. It's a trial and error. You always have to see what is working or what is, doesn't work. And this is not like the, the Bible for the strategies. It might be that this needs to be changed at some point, right? Because K looks differently at different points, depending on where you are at that point. These strategies will appear different or will meet different needs for different people. Uh Yeah, so for me, um, firstly, the The important thing is just to note that uh, uh, care for me it's, it means general, gen, genuine inclusion and concern for the well being and security uh, in, of the people that are in the movement, and so that everyone can can flourish uh, as they are in the movement. It, it's also about embedding rest within our work and, and practices. Uh, and that, that that means that this cannot be done alone. You need you need your community because there's no point, for example, if you work in a, in a community or in an institution or organize, if I take two months rest, all the work is gonna come on someone. So how do we make sure that my taking rest is not overburdening someone? So this speaks to the strategies that I want to share with you. The first one is institutionalizing the well-being and collective rest. So what do I mean by that that rest needs to be I- included in our budgets when we are creating budgets we need already to have covered this when we are creating work plans we need to make sure it's included when we are creating roles and responsibilities we need to make sure that if someone needs two months of uh, off because they're experiencing burnout we have a plan for someone else who is going to come in the organization do the work this clear end of a plan, you know, like really institutionalizes in our know, policy procedures so that it, it doesn't create a burden when someone has been out or someone has to leave because of a, an illness, you know. And then the second thing is organizing collective activities. So it doesn't have to be always about money or going somewhere fancy. It can be as simple as sh- sharing a meal, uh, cooking together, doing gardening. I was reading this time about <laughs> some community somewhere. Just started what a forest of some sort. I don't know. Uh, like a, it's like a supermarket, but it's not a supermarket. It's a forest because they started planting trees. Now the whole community can just walk in that space and gather whatever fruits they want, you know, without paying. So such things. Maybe if you have a space together, you can do collective gardening. Uh, it's also something that is relaxing and something you can do together and uh, other community have healing circles. So it's a space to bring you the whole you, your whole person into your emotions, your vulnerability, you break down, you cry, you grieve, you celebrate together in that space, it's allowed. Actually, there was um, one example from Zimbabwe, it was an organization for survivors of domestic violence. They have a crying room. so. If you come and you're facing challenges, you can go in. Someone is always ready to join you. They don't have to know why you're crying. They always also Because they are always also happy to join you. If you want support or if you want a crying partner, they will be there with you. So this was a really radical idea. They just did a room. It's a crying room. But it also I think it's because of the work that they do dealing with a lot of trauma. And some, sometimes they listen to stories. Sometimes it's people... We've gone through stories we need that space. So uh, it's it's also another idea that I I saw, but this was uh, a space that was really dedicated for that. Mm -hmm. There are also some rituals that people do to honor each other, to celebrate each other and to really uh, acknowledge each other's journeys, no matter where you are. So they also allow for safer spaces for international intergenerational dialogues without judgment, you know. Because there's a tendency to judge each other, like, oh, during our days we were doing this, we were radical, now we are too radical or whatever, but this is a space, a non-judgmental space, but a space for, yeah, for collective care, to celebrate also the big and small wins and each other, of course.
1: I love all that you are saying, and it's so refreshing to hear this, because sitting here in Brussels, where, you know, a lot of the work uh, the policy work with the institution is very much technique and technocratic uh, and very much mental That so that we forget uh, that uh, we are human beings and that we should have the space to experience all of it. Uh, the good, the bad, the sad, the, the joyful. And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, together we will be able to grow these spaces of vulnerability and uh, uh, honesty, authenticity, because this is what resilience is, as you've said.
2: Uh, Yes, I agree. I think it would be nice if we could see civil society as a community that can support each other. So, on that point, what do you think civil society organisations working on other issues can do to support trans rights, and how can we build more public support? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. That is uh, always a good question for us, especially because we work um, with our own groups, but also we really acknowledge the the fact that we cannot work alone. You need movements. You also need to work with partners. You need allies. This is what makes also a resilient movement. And uh, some of the key things that we know is that to build allies, we need to have mutual respect uh, in the space. of. it's not always about coming to a space for existence, whether it's trans people or any further marginalized group with an approach of uh, we want to to know or teach us or extractive, you know, always like, uh, come and give a lecture about your rights and then we don't have a budget for it. We just want to know about trans issues in the next hour. We don't want to overburden already burdened people. Uh, so I think if we're having this in mind, it also means before approaching groups, also make sure that um, you have uh, this mutual respect uh, space and also to acknowledge that, uh, yes, indeed, trans people are the experts or any further marginalized group that you want to bring into a space. They are the experts. Uh, and uh, yes, they need to be paid for for that. It's, it's, it's emotional labor to come and tell you about my life or share about my life in a magazine or whatever. You need to acknowledge that it is a job. You know, it it needs to be taken also seriously, just like any investor coming to share about investing in the stock market. You know, so this is important thing to respect trans people or any further marginalized groups, their narratives. And the most important thing is to listen, 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 listen. So you should be able to uh, accept that you don't know everything, that you have to listen to trans people and that you give them the space and that you are willing to learn unlearn or relearn if you have to and be reflective and without being defensive uh, and not to take everything personal because yes people are sharing about their stories maybe they will be emotional maybe there will be uh, some tension but it's always good to have an open approach when you're working with uh, further marginalized groups uh, and the second thing is also to make sure that you don't tokenize people or patronize them Let's not just sit in the room and be like, oh, there's no trans person. Oh my God, we need to find a trans person. Who do you know? Inclusion in a space should be really genuine and based on, of course, mutual respect and uh, mutual collaboration and trust that trans people also are experts, as I said. Not just bring them on your board so that you can show that we are a trans person during the meeting to count numbers, but to really value them for what they bring to the space, right? Uh, Because a lot of the times trans people face uh, testimonial injustice where no one really believes their story because it's them. Unless a researcher comes, research is about my life, and then goes and talks about it, then they will be listened to. So I think we also need to really uh, take the time to respect. And also don't put um, people in uh, situations where they will be exposed to more harm than they were already. So Just because you really need this story uh, to go live or this publication to be read worldwide, you have to think what happens in the event that there is a security threat for this person. This should be thought carefully because it might happen that you have an interesting story, you have an interesting angle, and you tell someone's story, put their pictures on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. The next thing, they have some groups hunting them down. How are you going to support them? So this needs to be thought before. If you know that you're going to expose them to harm, maybe it's better not to show their face. Maybe it's better not to use their names, you know. Uh, and so these are some of the strategies. And also it's a, it's important to, to consider that um, because I came, it doesn't mean I represent the story of every trans person. Trans people are diverse. You have to take different angles. You have to, especially those who face intersectional uh, discrimination, you really have to include their narratives because we're also seeing a trend where there's this one very rich privileged trans influencer is speaking for suddenly for the whole community but then the experience is totally different and uh, uh, removed, far removed from the experiences of trans people struggling every day. So whether it's trans people, whether it's whatever group, make sure that those further marginalized within that group are also included. The most important thing is really co-create with the the group involve them collaborate let them lead
1: this is uh, really something that i think it's important also for us to reflect as a european network working on civic space how can we make sure that uh, yeah we can support uh, in the best way possible depending on the specific needs of the activists and uh, it's super useful to hear this from you in terms of support, of course, there is also a part of communication. Um, like, And I know that the TJU has done some research on how to effectively communicate on trans rights and how to build support around this. Can you maybe share some tips that can help allies be better allies?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, you are right. We have done, especially around the anti-gender movement, we have done uh, work to ensure that our allies are also equipped to deal with uh, creating narratives that are countering, especially the the, the negative rhetoric of the, the anti-gender movement. And uh, yeah, as I said, some of the key tips all just in revolve around the same my ideas of uh, really include trans people in your communication and. That is the key strategy. You have to work with the, with the target group, not from a point of, we know everything, we've created everything. As you start designing, if it's a campaign, for, let's be practical. If it's the campaign that you want to do, you don't involve trans people when you're about to create the video. Probably best when you're designing the campaign itself, you know, involve the trans people here, what is more feasible, because maybe you've already said, you know, a campaign, we are producing a, a, a video. And it's about trans people in Russia. But can you think how it's going to impact people? So if you work with them from the get-go, they will inform you which is the best strategy to go about it. Is a video or maybe a publication? So this is one strategy that is in in our countering anti-gender movement because the anti-gender movement is well-resourced and it's big and it's well-connected. So And it's working at different levels. So indeed, there will be backlash for trans people. So the most important thing, the key strategy in any case is involve trans people uh, in whatever uh, campaign that you want to do. And the second reason, and the second strategy, as I said, is to be willing to learn reflective and also to unlearn, be reflective and be a learning organization. Uh, because, yes, people will come, you will probably have done a PhD in sexuality and gender, but you, you know, not trans, you have never lived that life, you know. So you should be willing to learn. As a research, I think when you go into a a field, you also go, you know your positionality, you know what is the issue here, and you have to be respectful of the people. Uh, I think these are the same, uh, yeah, this is the same language that we use in our, because we work from a human rights-based approach, and whether it's trans people, whatever group that you're going to work with, whether it's marginalized women in Roma, or, uh, uh, people with mental challenges, it's, it's going to be uh, the same approach to to involve them and make sure that they lead uh, uh, the, the communication. We also have, also get resources from organizations, collaborate, right, partnering. If you feel that you, you are in the room and you have to speak about trans issues, probably get in touch with TG, you look for resources, So we can share resources. We have a lot of resources. We're always happy and willing to share resources with you. Also, if you have budgets in your organization, uh, reach out to trans people organizations and think, how can we do this campaign together? Reach out to communities uh, on important dates or before. Do you have a campaign that we can uh, put our signature on or endorse, you know? And then you can also sign a statement together. If you do... uh, data uh, gathering, or monitoring, include trans people in those monitoring. work from an intersectional approach, not only trans. If you're working for human rights, really look for further marginalized groups, because those are the groups that no one ever uh, amplifies their stories or their narratives. Uh, so it's important uh, again to work from an intersectional approach and uh, to empower communities uh, holistically by providing them, yes, with the platform, the tools, the skills, but also uh, the financial resources, if you have them, empower them, employ them also in your organization, right? Like, not just to go there to say, now I need a research question, mm-hmm. I have a research question, mm-hmm. trans people will come. If you also have a job position, really be broad in your thinking. If you're organizing an event, really, really focus on uh, intersectionality and accessibility. Look at who will be left out and why. If we have to have a meeting, Put your pronouns because it empowers everyone in the room to feel empowered to put theirs, you know. If people don't use pronouns, they also feel confident to put it without saying it. Because if I come in in a Zoom room where people are just he, she, he, she, and I'm non-binary, it's going to be difficult for me to contribute because people will be calling me with a pronoun that I probably don't like. So it's just empowering. Simple things, put your pronoun, not because you have to, but because you want to support those who cannot do it with, directly by saying it, right? So you create these safer spaces by these uh, simple things.
1: So to finish, what are your hopes for a better world and for the future?
2: Oh, yeah, that is a very good question, an <laughs> important one. I always have to think, ah. I want so many things, I, I want so many things in a world, in a better world. Uh, but then of course I have to narrow it down. And uh, I I, I had to really create this um, vision based on my positionality also as a uh, non violence activist, as a person of color, uh, of a black person, uh, as a person with a mig- uh, refugee background. As a trans man. And I also have to think of all these things when I think of a world that I want and think of also my activism and so many other intersectionalities that I have. So I have to really think do I just want a world which is good for trans people? But no, what about for black people? You know, like, (laughs) but what about for refugees? (laughs) You know, so what about for people from Africa? So I really have to think um, (laughs) broadly, even though I have to narrow it down. But yeah, for me, I hope for a world where. All, all of us as humans and nature coexist uh in peace, mutual respect and love uh and that is a world where we can freely dream, love move, and thrive regardless of our identities or circumstances that we are born into.
1: I'm just taking it in <laughs> it's really beautiful. <laughs> Thanks so much for this.
0: You've been listening to Civic Spaces from the European Civic Forum. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ben Goodwin. Many thanks to Miles Tanhira for taking the time to talk to us, and to Jada Negri and Alexia Ozel for asking the questions. See you next time.